me start this up. We took a little two-week study to talk about the kingdom heebie-jeebies that we're in, and um, we'll we'll talk about that some more today. And um, <clears throat> then next week we're gonna uh, we're gonna have the panel up here to begin our several-week um, kick, kick off our several-week discussion uh, teaching series on false teachers, false gospels, which I will have a little promotional piece upstairs for this morning. So. Let's pray. Let's get into the lesson. Father, thank you this morning for bringing us out in the cold rain weather to come in here and have our hearts and minds set on things above, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to set aside self things, to really find out this morning from your word how great you are, how much you love us, and how you intend to transform us from within to the image and likeness of Christ. Help us to truly be able to say, I'm crucified with Christ. Help us to be honest with who we are. For we cannot grow except that we are. Amen. So, uh, by way of talking about some of the things that plague us as God's people, things that really you know, have to do with our own lack of, right? Obviously. God's not lacking anything that I'm aware of this morning. If He is, I'm out of here. So... There are things going on in our lives, things going on in our spiritual walk, in our spiritual formation, if you want to use it that way. Sometimes that can be a little, you know, people get a little bit like, whoa, spiritual formation is like some sort of mystic speak. Well, it's not. It's the process of discipleship. It's the process of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, It's the process corporately of putting on the new man. And so... I determined that we would talk about this for a few weeks and we would take the approach of this reference to kingdom heebie-jeebies. I can't help but laugh when I say that. Um, but that it's such a fitting title. It's such a fitting way to describe what goes on in our lives, the insecurities, the lack of... The insecurities and lack of confidence which come about as a result of, I think as we'll see this week a little bit, our failure to have God be God and the things that remain in us that continue to weigh us down a little bit. Um, So I introduced last week Dallas Willard. We'll talk a little bit about him this week and then hopefully we'll have time to get to A.W. Tozer because they're two uh, somewhat different approaches to looking at this problem although they have very much in common. The goal is certainly common. But with Dallas Willard, we talked about the acronym VIM, which he had sort of developed, which is in our spiritual life, uh, having the vision, okay, the vision, <coughs> intention, and means. And the vision of life in the kingdom, the intention to be a kingdom person, <coughs> and applying the means to that end. Which, of course, as we also said, applies to any area of life. Uh, we... If we're going to just think of the areas in life where this kind of thing applies, whether it's a profession, whether it's a relationship of some particular kind, you have a sense of what this thing looks like. And then you develop sort of the intention based on the vision. You you develop the intention to sort of have this be. And then you have to access the means to doing it. It could be something as young as something as simple as a young kid seeing a great uh, sports, a great athlete. I know it's always so easy to go to athletic metaphors. I'm not sure why. Uh, probably because they they require so much. Oh, let's do it this way. <laughs> let's suppose um, it, it's your goal to be a good parent. 
it's a goal to parent in the kingdom of God. You want to be a parent. So suppose that's a goal. Uh, and so you get a vision of what that can be like. What's it like to be a parent? What's it like to bring another human being into the world? You know? What's it like to have electron microscopically small bits of DNA from each person fused together and create a new human being <laughs> and to raise up that child and all that means and so we, uh, and so we can get a vision of what that's like and then we have to have the intention to be that and, and the intention sort of follows the vision I think we're only going to intend to do something our intention will be only as strong as the vision is powerful okay if something doesn't trip our trigger we're not going to really intend on doing it much right and, and that's why people that are outside Christ and sometimes people that are in Christ can be very sort of lackadaisical about spiritual things. They don't see the value in it. They don't see the... They haven't grasped the vision for what it means to live in God's universe under His sovereign, omnipotent, loving, caring, sacrificing, mercying, powerful, um, omnipotent grace... And so, therefore, there's not much intention there to do anything. It's very logical. And if there's no intention, then we're not going to set ourselves about to doing it. We're not really concerned with how do you get there. Because you don't believe it's a place you can go. So, uh, the vision underlying spiritual transformation or spiritual formation is the vision of life now and forever in the range of God's effective will. Okay, That is partaking of the divine nature. That's it was to be a partaker of the divine nature. The vision underlying spiritual formation, in other words... The thing that is going to be sort of, um, and we talked about this, Jesus said, except you be born, you know, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So the vision, what you can see, the, to have access of what the kingdom is, to be born again, that's, 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 at the, that's what underlies all of this. Our vision of what something is, or again, anything else in life, of what is it. And we know that for the Christian, for the born again, for the person in Christ, this takes a supernatural act of God. So there's, there's a difference. We don't need a supernatural revelation to see that I want to aspire to be this kind of an athlete or this kind of a mom or this kind of a speaker or this kind of anything. But underlying our spiritual formation is a vision of life now and forever in the range of God's effective will, as he puts it. Okay, What it means to live in God's will, what it means to live in God's omnipotence and to want to. And that's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. It's, it's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Very, very easy verse to read. Very easy verse to read. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we know the name of anyone in ancient thought represents the, the totality of their being, right? So to do something, to pray in the name of Jesus, is to pray with the power and the grace and the strength and all that he represents. So to, to, uh, to sort of um, live this way, to do this, to, to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, we have to know what that name means. We have to know what Jesus is. We have to know who he is. We have to know what he's done. We have to know how he, how does he, what, what's he, what's he mean? What is Jesus like? What is the Son and the triune nature of God? All this. This is why we grow in the grace and knowledge. This is why the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We have Christianity, a listening unbeliever, Christianity has exclusive claim to reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so God gives us this vision of life. 
through his self-revelation, through his revelation of himself. Something, though, that we inwardly hunger for anyway, I, I do think we have this inward drive in us. I do think that the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes touched on this when he said that we're... Um, Man has said, God has said eternity in the hearts of men, though he cannot sort of attain to it. And I think at least part of the reference to that is something so much bigger than us. So to, to really get a sense of what it is to live in the kingdom of God, to know the beauty of it, the all-satisfying reality of it, to believe that there's no other life worth living, that means it's a better life than a half-life of life in the kingdom and life in my kingdom. We have to become convinced utterly. We have to have a vision. We have to have, a, which is sort of an inner revelation, if you want to call it that, that God's kingdom and God's way is the absolute best without question, so that obedience isn't a task. It isn't so much a duty. We use the word, particularly in the Reformed Church, we talk about duty. <laughs> okay? But duty for us should. Just kind of be like second nature, shouldn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you first learn how to drive standard, if people do that anymore, drive stick, it's really a process, man. Trying to get that car not chugging forward when you, yeah, you dump the clutch too quick. But before you know it, you're doing that in your sleep, you know? <clears throat> do we really want to know that? Do we have a sense of it? And it takes God to reveal this to us. And it's not just a one-time revelation. We constantly need this sense of God affirming in us and continuing to put into us and continuing to compel us and to persuade us and to convince us of His greatness. Right? Because sometimes God's greatness interferes with my greatness. So we need that constant defeat. Or, call it mortification. There's a million things people have called it. Here's an interesting, interesting quote. I'll accept a little feedback on it. This is, this is again from Willard. Perhaps the hardest thing for Christians to come to grips with is the level of real belief in their own life. I'm sorry, real unbelief in their own life. The hardest thing for Christians to come to grips with is the level of real belief in their own life. The unformulated skepticism. Okay, in other words, it's not something we've worked carefully with. The unformulated skepticism about Jesus that permeates all dimensions of their being and undermines what efforts they do make towards Christ-likeness. So this man is a, is a thinker, and he's going to stretch you a little bit with this, I think. But that sort of, the level of our own unbelief, what would that look like? Does unbelief have to look like something massive? What, what small ways might unbelief manifest itself and betray, who, and betray our unbelief, give away our unbelief? What things in our life sort of give away where we're unbelieving at certain times? And you can point to someone else, but it'll be a lot easier. You're going to be a much better expert at what's going on in you. So, if you want to, if you want to, let me limit it to those that want to share something about themselves that they see this is real and not something that they see in the unbeliever or something that they see in their neighbor or some hypothetical thing. Um, well, you can say unbelief, or you can say trust. Mm -hmm. The opposite of trust, which is, mm -hmm. which is fear. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, for myself, you know, I, I grew up in this, the culture of you go to high school, you go to college, you get a job, mm -hmm. your security lies in your 401k mm -hmm. and, and this and that, uh -huh. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, I also grew up as a Christian. So, mm -hmm. 
there's sort of this <clears throat> trust as long as your logistics were all managed and lined up, right? Yes. And and so, uh-huh. you know, when God called our family away from the the full time job and into a life of missions and that kind of thing, there's there's the fear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the getting out of the boat kind of kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I would. So it's it's you know unbelief can make it sound like it's like black or white, like right. you believe or you don't. But mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of gray in there, right? Yes. And, yeah. and so for us, it was really recognizing that like trusting God is not conditional on our resources or our logistics, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what we cling to as security is not security at all. How does that affect your ability to love other people? Well, because you're putting yourself first. Right. How, so, and so this is what I want us to recognize is that the ways that this, and I, I agree, I'll get your hand in a second, Tony. I agree that unbelief and belief is gray. I, and I think that's why the guy in Scripture was like that. I believe, to help my unbelief. We don't know what else to call it, but it's going to impact us. When we're not trusting God, as we can be when fear comes in, how might that show up in our lives? It might show up as impatience. It might show up as anger. It might show up as even something, uh, it might show up as lust for either things sexual or food or money. Something that's going to try to comfort that level of irritation that we feel at the spiritual level. We get spiritually uncomfortable and we want to sedate that feeling of uncomfort. God wants us to be uncomfortable trusting anything else. But we look to, and when we are uncomfortable, it affects us at a very deep soulish level. And God can either fill that for us or we will we will attempt to somehow assuage that to mitigate that feeling, that awful feeling through something. And we train ourselves to get that through Again, money, sex, power, etc. Just, just like the unbelieving world, if we're not careful, Tony. I was going to say, I think Mike hit on it in that, you know, Jesus' quote is that everything I do, I do for the Father. We have the inability to do that 100% of the time. And some people are at different levels of, of selfishness and idolatry mm-hmm. and things like that, but every once in a while, not 100% of the time, we can drift off. Mm-hmm. Right, and our goal is... And you're, no, no, you're right. And our goal is to, to continue moving through that, Darlene. I believe that um, he works in my life. Yes. Um, and even in the bad things, I at the end I can see the good. Yes. But I have one very strong prayer request, and I'm giving that prayer to God, but I'm giving the power to the person. Because... Uh-huh. It's, his situation is so bad mm-hmm. and it's just gotten worse over the years mm-hmm. so I have given him the power and stopped asking God this is a very interesting question thing. this is very I appreciate the level of depth that goes into that thought because when you say you've given that person the power I think I understand what you mean by that but can you say exactly what you mean by that what does it mean when you're giving that person the power? Your own sense of well-being is dependent on how well that person progresses in response to your prayer? Say again? When you say you're giving that person the power and not God, are you saying that your own spiritual comfort, your own emotional comfort is very much hooked in to how well that person responds to your prayers? 
When you say you're giving that person the power, what does that mean? I'm giving that person the power to that God is the only one uh-huh. that can intervene in his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I've gone beyond the point of my happiness mm-hmm. or contentment mm-hmm. connected to that person. Oh, good. Um, well, that's a big move. That's no, that's no small thing. But now I'm saying, okay, that person is the only one that can get them out of this mess. Mm-hmm. And it's really God. Okay. So you said something different than I thought you meant, but that's... No, okay. but I, so I'm giving him mm-hmm. the power to get him out of his own mess gotcha. instead of giving it to God. I see. Barbara, did you have a comment or were you just... Just, I'm just shake, in no, nodding in agreement. Okay. I was just thinking because I think trust could be something as simple as feeling called to do something, like make a phone call, and you kind of put it off and you ignore it and you don't do it, and mm-hmm. then it ends badly. Mm-hmm. You know, because you didn't do something that simple that mm-hmm. you know you felt compelled to do. Yeah, yeah, because and, and there's a reason for not making that phone. If if you know that it's in God's will for you to do that, right? And you don't do it, whether it's a phone call to uh, make a relationship right or whatever, and you don't do it. That's because, again, there's something in us that's not trusting God rightly to... I just wanted to elaborate on where you were trying to go with Yes. Because I, you know, I totally was on the same page with you, that we pray for a situation or a person, (coughs) and, you know, we say we're trusting God and we're asking Mm -hmm. Him to intervene or whatever Mm -hmm. we want. Um whatever we desire, even though we say your will be mm-hmm. done. But my, some, often my, my contentment mm-hmm. um, is dependent upon yes. how that person reacts to yes. the situation rather than me trusting that's right. God and having faith no yes. matter and whether the person... And that's a wrong vision of the kingdom exactly. of God. Right? right? That's a wrong vision of the kingdom of God because we're really asking God to accomplish our will for the person. Right. Uh, so I appreciate that level of honesty. Let's go to Mark, and then let's go. And boom, uh, boom, so boom. I think, it's, 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 I think that situation is encapsulated in the in, um, in the prayer that says, uh, "Let your will be done, Lord." Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we can't know all the mm-hmm. in all the uh, mm-hmm. details of the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're concerned about it, but the Lord's will needs to be done because we know that this will not the Lord of all the earth do right. Right. Exactly. Tony, and then we've got to move yeah, on. I just to say what Barbara and Mark just said is true, is that Christ always knew the will of the Father. And we don't always know the mm-hmm. will. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's very difficult for us to know the will of mm-hmm. the Father. And so in that circumstance, we can't always follow you know, His will if we don't know what it is per se. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Obviously, it, He is sovereign and, and He's in control of everything. And and uh, you know the outcome is always going to be to his will, but we have difficulty in the decision on what to do sometimes. Where Christ never had any difficulty on any decision. Okay, um, thank you for that uh, intention. Then, so once we get a good look, once we get a grasp of the vision, that's going to fuel our intention. That's going to make us be sort of the kind of well, that's that's going to give us drive. Because again, let's face it, we are not passive in our spiritual growth. We're just not. Uh, we're not. We're called to do things. There's, there's imperatives in Scripture. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, I was reading the text that um, 
Todd's going to preach on this morning. And that's a call. Okay? To, that's a specific call. That's not the Lord laid it on my heart. Okay? Which can be very ambiguous. But this is a specific call. Right? Uh, there are things it calls us to. And there are things that we're summoned to. When, when Paul said our ambition is always to be pleasing Him, then, then that logically tells me I can know what pleases the Father. So even if I don't know if I should turn left or right here, Tony, I can know that if I, whether I turn left or whether I turn right, I can do it with love and a smile. That's the will of God for me in Christ Jesus. Even if I'm sort of going in the wrong direction, right? So if we get the grand sort of vision, then we'll, then we'll have drive. Just as a result of... And this is why it takes being born again. This is why, this is why we go to church. I mean, this is why we gather. This is why we sit. This is behind so much of what we do. Because we've got a vision for what life in the kingdom can be like. And we, we can sharpen that vision. We can, get, we can get high def. Okay? We can get super high def. I don't know what's coming next in technology. You should just be plain old, you know, TV granulated, whether or not you could adjust the antennas correctly. Um, right? And, and now we have high def, and now we also have super high def, and I don't know what comes next is, you know, mega high def, you're in the picture with the person. I don't know. But I do know that we can continue to hone, right? So yeah, we can continue to hone our vision and get it sharper. And that will give us the intention that we need. That will give us the... Um, the intention, it, it is the vision of life in God's kingdom and its goodness that provides, again, an adequate basis for the steadfast intention to obey Christ. There is no such thing as trusting Christ without intending to obey Him. we got to get that. There is no such thing. And young and old need to hear this. If we say we've trusted Christ or if we say we're in the faith or whatever you want to call it. And that's why Paul was able to use terms like the obedience of faith. Because that almost seems contradictory or oxymoronic, but it's not. It is the obedience of faith. Something Reformed folks can get real hung up on. Because like, oh, faith, faith that works, and faith that works. Put, put, put that aside for now and just pay attention to the Scripture. The divorcing the faith and works thing has been the cause of a lot of uh, falls. Okay? There's no such thing as trusting Christ without intending to obey Him. We have to intend to obey. If we don't intend to obey Him, we deceive ourselves. And we can be honest and find out when we haven't intended to obey Him. You know it, you know it, you know it like you know anything else. If you intend, if you really intend to be healthy, if you really intend to lose 20 pounds, then you have to obey, stay away from Twinkies. 20 bones. You, you have to. <laughs> What's that? 20 bones. 20 bones, yeah, you have to stay away from them. You have to. Intention, genuine intention, is, uh, is, is, the, is, is the intent, it, it, this, this sort of it, trust is an intention to obey. Uh, Seth? So, uh, Todd, sorry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a big deal Dietrich. out of this, yeah. Mm. Um, he, he posits the fact that every Christian has a calling, which we do, mm. and the calling requires us to put one step forward in order yeah. for faith to act. And this is not legalistic, right? Yeah. We don't see this sort of as legalism, do we? I hope. Uh, it, it, not at all. It can be twisted to legalism. There are some that rest and twist the scriptures to their own destruction. I was just thinking about the, the fantastic outcome if we can do this. Um, is that <coughs> the peace that surpasses all understanding 
is rooted in this trust. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if, when we can do it, we find out, oh my goodness, how glorious this is. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I mean, I know what it's like as a husband and father to have no intention at all of obeying Christ in a particular instance. So I might as well call it what it is. If I know ahead of time, I'm not talking about the thing, if I know ahead of time that dealing thus and such with sort of a, a child or my wife is not very likely what Christ wants me to do and I do it anyway, that's an intention to disobey when it's a lack of trust altogether. Because either I think my way is going to work better or more likely it's going to satisfy my need to express sinful anger or something. There's no such thing as trust in Christ without intending to obey Him, without making regular decisions to obey Him. Trust is the intention to obey. And if genuine intention is there, the deed reliably follows. If genuine intention is there, then the deed reliably follows. Right? What, if you... Uh, Gabe, what is the single best game that you play on PlayStation or whatever it is? Skyrim. I'm sorry? Skyrim. So, when you first saw Skyrim advertised, you said, that's cool, right? Yeah. I want to be able to... What's the, what's the goal of Skyrim? <laughs> okay, so you said, that looks cool. I want to learn how to... I, so, you get this... You just get this... I mean, I know what that's like. Just, well, that is so cool. I want to do that, right? And then you, so you get this intention, and then intention turns into obsession, but... <laughs> Your intention to, to defeat this thing. And then you say, okay, so what are the means? So have you ever looked up hints in magazines about how to do it, gotten clues from friends? Those are the means to satisfying and, 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 and fulfilling the intention to capture the vision. Is our life in the kingdom like that? It certainly can be. Okay? So, <clears throat> the means for spiritual transformation, uh, for the replacing of the inner character of the lost with the inner character of Jesus. His vision, understanding, feelings, decisions, and characters. And character. That's what it is. Okay? That's the means for spiritual... Uh, is what we need next. How do I replace the inner character of either the lost, or what's, what still remains kind of lost in me, or as we'll see in a few minutes, uncrucified in me, I guess, to replace that with the inner character of Jesus. We are united to Him, are we not? We have union with Christ. And I'm not talking about perfectionism. It has nothing to do with that. His vision, His understandings, His feelings. Right? That's what it means to be a disciple. When, in Jesus' day, when people discipled under a rabbi, they spent time with Him and observed how He did things. Remember the ad a long time ago? This is the father's walking along with his son. If you're under 40, you don't know this ad, but you can appreciate it. The father's walking along with his son. He picks up a rock and throws it. And then the little boy, he's probably five, he picks up a rock and throws it. And then he does something else. He's playing with a stick, hitting the trees as he goes by. And the little boy picks up a stick and he's whacking the trees as he goes by. Then the old man sits down next to an oak tree, takes out his pack of lucky strikes, and fires it up and puts it down. And the ad closes with the little boy picking up the pack of lucky strikes. Remember that ad? That's what it means to be a disciple. That's, that's discipleship, pure and simple. Um, so, what are the means, do you suppose, for our spiritual formation, transformation, growth? What are the means? What are the tools that we employ? That's what means are, right? Do we understand means? So, if the means of improving in Skyrim are 
getting those magazines that have the secret clues in them. And a friend, you know, talking to a friend, you find out he does it a certain way, and he figured out how to, you know, destroy that particular dragon or whatever it is you do in Skyrim. So you've got to get the means. What are the means of our spiritual growth, do you suppose? I think they're pretty simple. Bible study. Yeah, Bible study. Um, I don't know, I guess big picture. I, I always look to... I, it's always interesting in you know, Matthew 25 when it talks about the judgment of the, the Gentiles, the separation of sheep and goats. Yeah. It's all acts. Yeah. Action. Yeah. You know, um, C.S. Lewis say, you want to change your world, take a step and then another step. Yeah. Right? So there's... There's action that's connected to our to yeah. our faith, you know, and that's yes. where that that faith works thing, you know, can work. It works in harmony. It doesn't yes, it work does. In, in, that's right. You know, opposition. To it is harmony. That's a great way to describe it musically. Is it is harmony? Yep. Yeah. Um. So yeah, scripture reading, prayers, uh, ask. The acronym ask. Going to Matthew six, I think it is. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For whoever asks, uh, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And whoever knocks, it is open. Or which one of you, among you, uh, is this whose son asks for an egg? Are you going to give a scorpion? And if you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things? Or in Luke, one of the Gospels, it says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Um, So those are sort of, uh, you know, and, and through this process of meditation, uh, some people do fasting. Uh, I'm not a real big faster. Occasionally I do, but I, I have to admit I've never taken a real approach to uh, any prolonged or consistent pattern of regular fasting uh, from food. I can't even tell you that I understand it that much, though I think I understand the idea. Um, and this is, this is, um, this is going to help us uh, getting feedback from others. We have to include others in our walk. This isn't your walk and my walk. This is our formation as a body as well. We need the input of other people. We need people that we can go to and share that something about us that we're not willing to let go and share of yet because it's still causing us embarrassment or whatever. It can be a, we're going to see with A.W. Tozer's thoughts in a minute, a grueling process at times. <gasps> but I thought it's all grace. Yes, it is. Um, in. Uh, one of the ways that we sort of get the vision thing I, I was thinking of this in the Bill Murray version of A Christmas Carol which is Scrooged if you've seen that so it's just a little more contemporary right hey you jerk you know um, but at the end he sort of starts to get it and he says if you believe in the spirit he's, he's all excited he's all excited he says you know you, you can take a blanket to someone it's cold he, you, can, you can bring a sandwich to them and say here and he's all excited about what he's, you know, been awakened to. He says, if you believe in this spirit thing, the miracle will happen and you'll want it to happen again tomorrow. And you won't be one of those jerks who says Christmas is once a year and it's a fraud. It's not. It can happen every day. You're just going to want that feeling. And if you like it and you want it, you'll get ready for it. You'll, you'll want it every day of your life and it can happen to you. He says, I believe it now. You know, he's all wound up. He says, I believe it's going to happen to me now. I'm ready for it. and It's great. He says, it's a good feeling. He says, it's really better than I've felt in a long time. He says, I, I'm ready. That's kind of, he got the vision. And he certainly had the, the intention followed, right? He wanted to go do something at that point. And, and he certainly had the means uh, as well. Um, in our upcoming series of false teachers, the problem they present, uh, I think, most often comes from this false vision of what the kingdom actually is. This is what 
compels their intention, this is what defines their intention, and this in, in, in turn sets their means in order. This tells them what means they have to do it. So whether it's a prosperity gospel or it's a, uh, as we'll learn some, about some hypergrace, we're going to learn about these different things that come forth from contemporary false teachers and false gospels. I think the problem begins with a false vision of what the kingdom is. And uh, that's where the rub is. Uh, and they're not fully aware of it. And uh, neither are they open to sort of hearing about it. So, uh, so that's sort of, a, a, in a nutshell, some of you know, Dallas Willard's approach. And there are others. There are people that are sort of more of what I would call the mystics, which is a hard thing to define. Uh, formally speaking, the mystics goes back to the Middle Ages, 15th, 1600s. People that were somewhat ascetic. You know, they had a, oftentimes an isolated lifestyle. They believed in an experience of God that was just sort of immediately mediated between them and God and an awareness of Him. And They had some errors in their way of thought, but they also had some deep truths. And um, St. John of the Cross, you know, Dark Night of the Soul would be one. Uh, I'll quote another one in a few minutes. Um, A.W. Tozer was somewhat of a student of the mystics, though he himself was a little bit more solid than that. Um, has anyone in here ever read any of Tozer? Um, I would recommend A.W. Tozer but, but he is heady a little bit very deep heady is that what you think he goes deeper than theologians quote him a lot yeah yeah. He, he's in deep water right I'm sorry yes yes 1897 to 1963 is when he lived, okay? As a teenager on his way home from work at a tire company one day, he overheard a street preacher say, if you don't know how to be saved, just call on God, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. <coughs> Upon returning home, he climbed into the attic and heeded the preacher's advice. He had no formal theological training, but five years after his conversion, he began to pastor it. And then he pastored for close to 40 years, a couple of different churches, uh, and he was involved in what was called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, kind of a denomination. It is a denomination. It didn't start out that way, but it is that now. Um, you can go to their website and read their statement of faith, which for the most part is solid. Uh, I think it goes too far with the sort of certainty of healing thing they seem to be uh, in touch with, but I don't know that much about it. Anyway, from, uh, from his uh, book, The Pursuit of God, uh, there's a section titled Removing the Self-Life Veil. <laughs> and this is where I say his approach is a little bit different than the approach we just discussed with Dallas Willard, but underlying it is the same kind of thing. Um, he says that we sense that the call is for us, but still we fail to draw near. And the years pass and we grow old and tired in the outer courts of the tabernacle. What hinders us? That's the question behind my whole, behind this whole two-week lesson is what hinders us from growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What is hindering us? What is holding us back? It is something that we absolutely have to wrestle with. God doesn't intend us to not wrestle with it. He intends us to wrestle with it. He intends for us to wrestle with it, struggles from within and struggles from without. From uh, dark, demonic spiritual forces to the things that come out of our own <coughs> sense of self, which is what he's concerned about. Um, 
And so we, when we say what hinders us, what hinders us, the question back to him is what hinders us from what? What are we, what are we hindered in? What, when, we, when we think about things that hinder us, okay, if we were to talk again uh, about reaching any other particular goal, we'd ask ourselves, what keeps us from arriving at the goal? What is preventing us? I think if we're too comfortable where we're at, then we yeah. feel like there's really no need to grow and mm-hmm. why push yourself. Yeah, yeah, to, to keep yourself sort of unchallenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that challenge can even be genuinely asking God to reveal things about ourselves to ourselves. I'm sorry? Understanding. Understanding, yeah. It's, as soon as I realized how important I was to God, mm-hmm. I couldn't get enough of them. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, you know, I shared once before, okay, Darlene said, let's move on to the next one, and I was just kind of pushed to the side. Yeah. That's what I always thought. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, okay, but when I realized that she really loved me, mm-hmm. it was like, I want to know more about her. Yeah, the love of God, yeah. It requires understanding, it requires heart, it requires things that can't, it go, goes beyond understanding. Exactly. Thought. Uh, our unwillingness to accept suffering as God's plan. To yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that'll that'll be a big one we encounter with the false teachers. Mm-hmm. The view the view of suffering. There's a very black and white area when it comes to many of the false teachers. Is the view on suffering and what its place is in our life? And yeah, Mark. But that puts aside the whole idea that God is in it and God has a purpose for it. Right. Exactly. So they they miss a whole benefit, a whole blessing, I think, uh, by going in that direction. Yeah, they do, and you know, suffering is something I'm sure we could talk about for a very long time. I think it, I think you have a sticker on your car, right? That says I used to yeah, my other car here for some woman cream me. <laughs> what, what did it say? There was a C.S. Lewis quote. Yes, you don't you don't have a soul. You are a yeah. soul. You you, no, a you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have you a are body. a soul. You have a body. And I think the the heart of that is is eternal mindedness, right? Yeah. Is mm-hmm. uh, you know when when you really recognize your role in, in the context of eternity and not just the the the, the years that you'll spend in, yes. in this body yes. it changes your it changes your goals it changes your vision yes. it, it helps to breed fearlessness and contentment with doing without and yes yeah that's vision kingdom vision right what does it mean to have eternal life right because you're right we so often confuse and here's a way to correct our vision of the kingdom confuse eternity as a sort of quantifiable amount of time as opposed to um, etern- what does it mean to have eternity right now it means that this particular sin is not going to kill me it means I'm indestructible to the I'm ultimately indestructible to the effects of uh, fallenness you know the, the indestructibility of this life script here a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask you a question or anybody else. When you're going through a really, really hard time, Mm -hmm. a trial that just goes on and on, Mm -hmm. can you really honestly say that you can see God in it? Because I'm really going to put myself out there because When I go through a really rough, rough time, mm-hmm. it's only when it's solved and <laughs> I'm, I'm quiet yeah. that mm-hmm. I can look back and say, oh yeah, there was God. Oh yeah, there was God. But while I'm going through it, I can't see it. 
Mike's going to answer you um, no, I, I with can profundity. And, and darling, we, we don't know each other very well, but yeah. you know, when we, um, my family and I lived in Haiti, when shortly after we moved there, um, our daughter, she was six at the time, um, came under just a huge amount of demonic oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't get into the specifics of it, but it was um, there's a huge spirit of sexual perversion that lingers over over Haiti and uh, images that she was just having put into her mm. her mind uh, just it, it was emotionally physically crippling for her there mm. was there was a heaviness and a weight and an oppression mm. that was there and it took a long time for that to lift but it did lift mm. uh, but during that process we saw God all all through that through mm. that process in the respect that like it caused us in the in in those times to really mm-hmm. recognize what what is spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? What what how does it work? Right? And 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 then what do we do? And then how do we fight? And so we dug into the armor of God and, and digging into that. And, and I remember one night, my son who was eight at the time, he um, he was sitting there at a table. We didn't have electricity. And he's got a Bible out and a, and a little battery-powered lantern. And he's just scouring the scriptures for verses that he could speak to Ivy as she was falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't have victory over at that time. Mm-hmm. This was the worst days of our lives. Mm-hmm. But yet, like, in that, he was brought to this empowering of, of like, I realize that it's... It's not better yet, but this is how it gets better, mm-hmm. you know. And and so mm-hmm. it, it was a, a a really. I mean, and there's a thousand of those things that happened in that mm-hmm. you know in that time frame until that that oppression was lifted. But that was just one of them that that sat with me. That in that moment, like yeah, God was there, and He let that happen, and He let us linger there because now it's better. But He still knows how to fight, you know. The question that you asked. Uh the first thought that I had was, I don't necessarily understand what God is doing in it like I can afterwards. This is something that I work through in my head often. To say that I can't... There are some things I may never know. Okay, so I got I was texting with a friend this morning. And he sent me a... He said, yeah, I'm having a bad week because he got terrible flu and all this. And I had a cat scan because his headaches were so severe. He said, but my friends were having probably a worse week. And he sent a picture of her memory card when she was three years old and they were at a family vacation a whole bunch of Christians at a camp up in New Hampshire and somebody just they just stopped paying attention for a few minutes and she drowned and this week is the third anniversary of her death and I said so you know do you see what God is doing in that will you ever know what God's purpose in that was probably not I doubt those family will ever look back and say I see now what God was doing and that's the secret of faith is not necessarily understanding what he's doing, but knowing that he's God and that he's doing something only he understands. I think really, like personal experience, like my, what Mike was talking about mm-hmm. several years ago, like six or seven now, um, there, there, there was never really an outcome of it that I could see that was absolutely beneficial for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like what Darlene was saying. Dope. But there was a tremendous relief that came mm-hmm. when God gave me an amazing revelation that, mm-hmm. you know what, I can't figure it out and to trust Him. And then as soon as I got to that point where I was able to do that yep. and stop, stop it from bothering me so much, mm-hmm. 
that there was the relief then. I still didn't know the outcome that it was going to be good. Mm. However, the relief from it was, you know, you can get to a point in some troubles where <coughs> you have to give it to God. If you don't, it's, it's going to stay with you and... It's it's the why question. It is the why question. You know, can we can we live not knowing why, Mark? Didn't Paul describe that when he was saying that uh, he had asked God for the removal of the thorn in his flesh? Yeah, sure. And God said, Yeah, yeah. And God said, My grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. In other words, yeah. This is it until I'm I'm ready to change it. Yep. And you may find out the reasons why. Yes. But not necessarily. Amen. Right, let me get through a few more quotes that I want to get through. So he talks about the veil of self. And then so the question is sort of, what does a veil do? Well, it, a veil hides things, right? A veil sort of covers things. It, it makes it so that you can't really fully see at least what's behind it. Okay, even if it's a sort of a translucent or a transparent veil, you can see the visage behind it a little bit, but you can't see with clarity. The veil of self, okay? And Toza goes on to write, the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on unjudged in us, uncrucified and unrepudiated, a self-life we have never truly acknowledged, of which we have been secretly ashamed, and which for these reasons we have never brought it to the judgment of the cross. So there's a lot there. A self-life, a life that's more or oftentimes directed towards the self instead of outwardly towards God, that we have never truly acknowledged, of which we have been secretly ashamed, this is I can I'll define this as in a certain sense denial of my addiction to alcohol and drugs when I was. Uh, I never truly acknowledged it until a certain time, but something of which I was secretly ashamed all the time, all the time, a secret sense of shame. Shame is uh, it, it is crippling. Shame is crippling. And we're never intended to live in shame no matter what it is. And this is why no matter what's going on in your life, there's some darkness, something, it has to come out publicly with someone somewhere somehow. It has to. Um, so there are other things in our life like that. Things that perhaps, and this is, this is the definition of, of denial, is never fully acknowledging it, but always being ashamed of it. And which, for these reasons, again, we've never brought it to the judgment of the cross. These self-sins are self-confidence, self-pity, self-righteousness, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. And, And then he goes on to say, yeah, we might be able to recognize these, but it can be removed only in spiritual experience. Never by mere instruction. We might as well try to instruct leprosy out of the system. There must be a work of God in destruction before we are free. There must be a work of God of destruction. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. Then he quotes our genuine French mystic, Madame Jean Guyon. God gives us the cross and then the cross gives us God. There's a lot in that, isn't there? God gives us the cross and the cross gives us God. And then uh, the last quote, and then we can talk a little bit more if we need to. Uh, i got to close a little bit probably before 25 of because I have to get upstairs and do some technical things. But Toza said, The cross is rough and it is deadly, but it is effective. It does not keep its victim hanging there forever. 
There comes a moment when its work is finished and the suffering victim dies. After that is resurrection, glory, and power. But we have to come to that point of death. And that's why Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Or bring them to God so that He can bring us to the cross. We pray, Jesus, keep me near the cross. We sing that song, right? Keep me near the cross. And we talk about taking up your cross. Um, And so there has to be this constant desire that... You know, when God's ready to sort of crucify a thing in us, and we're ready to sort of get up on... The problem is we're like the suffering victim on the cross, right? Our sins are like the suffering victim that continues... Because, you know, when you're crucified, you basically die of asphyxiation. You you suffocate to death. And that's why they're always... Crucifixion victims were often just pushing themselves up, as painful as it might have been, to get a little relief so they could take some air in. We have sins like that. We have sort of little secret sins or things like that that we, we, we want to crucify them, but man, they're hard to die. We push ourselves up a little bit, try to get a little bit of life that we can breathe into that sin a bit. And this, if we see this, that we can, then we can get on our face before God and ask Him to do, but we have to genuinely be prepared to ask God to do the work, right? Of um, to, And this is why, again, even in like a, 12-step programs are a little bit in touch with this, I think. Uh, when we um, There's a process of getting to this place where you can ask God to actually remove your shortcomings. You know? To, 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 we, but there's a process to getting there. You, 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 you get there by, by stripping away all the lies and all the deceit and really getting self-honest, working with other people, working with a group to get at the kinds of things that used to end up in you, you know, either taking this drug or that food or that sex or whatever, to genuinely be ready to have God remove those is an excruciating process at times, I believe. So, but the grace of God is such that, and, and while it sounds like a work, it's the grace of God that acknowledges it in us and, and carries us along in it. There are things in us that we don't want to die. You know what they are in you. You know what they are in you. Uh, all of us grown-ups and you three that are semi, semi, maybe connecting with this. I don't know, you know, all the things you've been through in your own lives and where you're at, but you know there are things in your life that you have no intention of crucifying. They live on. They might have one nail in them, so you're kind of hanging like this. Yeah, that's this is the, I come to church, I do this and I do that. You got one nail in it, right? And it might be a nail your parents put there. Or it might be a nail my wife puts there in me. You know, in any one of us, not just you. I'm not picking on you because you're young. I'm just trying to give you a heads up. It doesn't get any easier, in a sense. But, that, but those things that have to be crucified. And we know the difference between crucifixion and just a little bit of sort of torture. We have to get to a place, and you might not be at a place. I, we may not, God help us, be at a place where we want this thing put to death. Then we have to ask God, God, I am uh, I am a Jacob. I am a deceiver in this. I know I know that I want to, that I need to have this put to death, but right now I don't even desire that it be put to death. And I don't even know how to stand before you and ask you that because I'm embarrassed by it. And I think even that is simple enough for God to work with. God doesn't need anything. He certainly doesn't need much. Uh, but there has to be that place in us where we're willing to acknowledge what those things are. Why? So that we can most fully enjoy the kingdom. Enjoy God. Have access to all His love. See His love. Feel His love. Experience His love. His grace. 
I, I, I want that a lot more. I, I know I could sit here with you afterwards and give you probably ten examples this week of how I wasn't that. And it's all in the same basic areas all the time. I know what they are. I, I know what they are. And I have one person that's sort of a confessor. I know what sin I am, what thought process I am not crucifying. I know what it is. And I stand here before you guilty this morning of pushing up on the podium a little bit so I can get a little bit more breath, a little more oxygen to keep that sin alive. And as long as I do that, I'm going to suffer. You're going to, the church is going to suffer. Because we have to be corporately healthy, right? So we pray for one another that our, we, we confess our sins to one another, we pray for one another that we may be healed, that we may be taken beyond that. And I'm crossing the line from teaching to preaching. So, um, yeah, okay, you're right, you're right. Uh, so, let's pray, uh, and we, uh, we have one minute if there's any last question or comment. I don't want to leave a dark, somber cloud hanging. Yes, I do. This one, well, although he was the son, he learned obedience, yeah. and he suffered. Yeah. And we may not have all our wise answered, but we know the direction he wants us still to go. Yeah, yeah. Man. I was going to say, it's that intentionality to follow Christ. Yeah. And it's really in us because God already knows your faults. Mm. So for us to try and hide it and be embarrassed by it, <laughs> it is silly. It's really sinful self yeah. that we just don't want to admit it. Yep. So. And ultimately, and that even that sometimes can become a veneer that we hide behind so that we can continue it. Oh, you know? We can be so self-deceptive. But God knows that too. And He's going to work in us conform us to the image of his son. He's doing the work. We're, I don't know how else to describe it. We're working together. We're co-laboring with Christ. We're, we're doing these things. But God's love for us is a burning, passionate, you know, God's, I, I read a, uh, something this week, an article on the joy of the Lord is his strength. And it never hit me the way this did. God's joy in himself is my strength. His joy is not dependent on whether I overcome this or that. God's ultimate joy in who he is is my strength. I thought, wow, I never hit it that way. I was thinking, if I'm joyful in the Lord, then that will be my strength, right? But being joyful, there's my strength. And no, it's different. It's a little bit more God-centered than that. God's joy is my strength. Chapter 6. What's that? Chapter 6. Oh, is it? Is it in our book? Way to go, April. It's not a small group. Alright, so, um, then, I want someone to pray. Anyone pray that doesn't usually pray for us? Jeannie, are you comfortable praying? Thank you. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy that's been given to all of us, Lord. We thank you for Pat and his honesty, Lord. We thank you for his teachings on Sunday mornings, Lord. And Father, just, Lord, you know all of our secret sins, Lord. And Father, we our desire is to draw closer to you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, this week that each one of us will reveal them to us, Lord, so that we can um, repent of it and be closer to you this week, Lord. And Father, um, give us a heart now to go upstairs and to worship you, Lord, and and truth, Lord. And Father, we just love you and we praise you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks. I should have said people I don't usually call on. Not, I didn't mean to suggest there's people out there that don't have a desire to pray. <laughs> but that includes you. 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 Oh, still recording?